when that, that life source, divine God, whatever we're calling it, when we allow ourselves to be a conduit for that, that's really, for me, when an eight has joined those two worlds. From Nat's Numbers, I'm Nat, and this is the Numerology Chick Podcast. Let's decode the superpowers in your chart and in the people around you to create magic, synchronicity, and empowerment in your life. Hey guys, welcome back to episode seven. Today I'm interviewing Christopher Harding, who honestly, I don't know how I got to be so lucky to have this guy in my life. He's become a dear friend, and I consider him to be a powerful business mentor in my life. Chris has been this entrepreneur and startup business specialist for most of his life. He started his first business when he was 14 years old. No joke. And when I did his numerology, I was not surprised because he has the eight life path and eight name number. The eight is the superpower of authority, of influence, and of business acumen. It's the superhero of the king or the master manifester. And we have a lot to learn from Chris because he's not only started and ran businesses in a lot of different realms like the transportation industry, the communications industry, entertainment, but he's also reached upwards of millions of dollars in revenue for these companies. He even led a production company that won an Oscar and an Emmy. He has been around the block, this guy. And in 1998, he formed his current company, Luminary Communications, which is actually how I first met him where he's made it his job to inspire and influence global organizations. So they create these thriving cultures for employees and leaders to coexist in a thriving and harmonious way. And what's really cool is when Chris came to the office for the interview, he had just recently had a great win one of his clients, Whirlpool, was acknowledged as being one of the top 25 companies for their diversity and inclusion work, a program that Chris and his team actually helped to guide and catalyze. So if you have an eight in your numerology chart as your life path number, name number, heart's desire, you gotta listen to this. Chris shares how to get out of the power struggles that eights experience that holds us back from truly experiencing our blissful, abundant lives. He also reveals one of the secret ingredients that needs to be sprinkled into your experience to be able to access success in your business ventures. And Chris and I discover in our conversation what we have to include in our goal setting and visualization technique to keep that abundance flowing in and through our lives when we want to control it, when we want to shut it down, when we get scared. That was a really, really cool aha moment. So without any further ado, let's get right into the interview. I'm really excited to interview you. Because <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> we've had so many coffee shop conversations. We have, we have. About quantum physics, about manifestation, and ultimately, 
about this superpower that we share in common. That was actually kind of cool when I I learned more about this eight archetype, and it was really helpful that you happen to be the same one because we could kind of commiserate with our challenges <laughs> and also kind of revel in the aspects of the eight that are maybe more obviously fun. So that's uh, that. That's the thing that I, I find fascinating about this, though, is the, and you know this more, and I, at some point I'm going to have to get into this with you, is you know the facets of your personality. Right. And so eight is the primary one for you, yeah. right? And for me as well. But at some point I'm going to have to learn some of these other aspects of it because I, I know that there are times that those things impact each other. Oh, they do. It's like it's multifaceted. But what's interesting about your chart and why I'm so intrigued to, to interview you and have you share your wisdom with other eights or people that are in love with eights or no eights is because you're a double eight. Right. So the two most dominant positions in your chart, your life path and your name number are are the number eight, Jeez. right? The superpower <laughs> of influence, leadership, manifestation. You know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I could say that answers a lot of questions for me because it doesn't matter what company I've been in. I mean, starting from the very first real job I had while I was in college, almost within ridiculously short periods of time, people come to me and want to put me in leadership roles. <laughs> <laughs> and especially to start new things. It's like, you know, they're looking to like manifest something, right? They're looking to start something up. So I've been kind of this startup guy from before I was even out of college. That was, that's funny. That was my first question is what's the earliest memory that you have of being this influencer, this leader? Probably. I mean, I mean, I think you know, we all go through our trauma, and I think my earlier childhood was, was so filled with trauma, I, I don't know that I was aware of, of having that ability. But I, I remember at age, I think it was 14, I wanted a bike. And m my dad said, well, you know, you can get a job and earn a bike. And that wasn't quite what I had in mind, but I, uh, I went out and I got, uh, you know, this thing where you could look for different type of jobs that a 14-year-old kid could have. And I found this thing where you could sell greeting cards and wrapping paper and sundry things that would go with holidays and birthdays and so on. And I went around the neighborhood and other neighborhoods and started selling. And what I found was is <clears throat> I could sell to everybody. Suddenly, it took me a very short period of time to earn, a money, earn the money for a bike because I had this ability to influence people. And I'd go to the door, and sometimes they'd be like, oh, thanks very much, but no. And I'd go, well, hang on just one second. Can I ask you a question? And I'd start into this whole thing and have a conversation with them. Next thing I knew, they were buying multiple items. And I didn't even know how I did it. It just came natural. So later... Uh, you know, as I said, as I got into different things, people kept putting me in leadership roles for no discernible reason for, as far as yeah. I was concerned. Yeah. So, yeah, fascinating. I, have, I, have, I completely relate to that. I remember, so there's two things that are coming up for me. Uh, number one is I myself throughout my childhood couldn't recognize my own power. 
Mm, And I have to say this because for people who are listening, who have that eight in their chart and maybe they're still in that initial phase, it's normal for eights to initially feel helpless, incapable, and powerless. Wow. That's our training. And you and I have talked about this, that the eight is oftentimes uh, under the thumb of an authority figure. Is an older brother count? Yes. <laughs> was it for, was it your older brother for you? Yeah, um, uh, probably that mm-hmm. was the the strongest. And there there was also kind of this bully in the neighborhood that uh, you know was an unjust leader. And I think I developed this real kind of passion for dealing with uh, what I consider to be abuse of power. And you know, it really went sideways in my early adulthood. Uh, as I started to react to what I thought was an unjust boss, you know, it really took me down paths that weren't necessarily um, the most productive. <laughs> I want I want to hear more about that because because it is a common theme when we have that superpower of influence to fight authority figures to rebel. <laughs> I can think of a, a you know four instances in my life where that was a main theme that I would bring to the table at dinner every single night. For me, it was particularly, and maybe only, male bosses. And so, because I had a few uh, women bosses early on as well, and I didn't have an issue with them. I had issue with guys that were bosses, and I can remember kind of getting into it with my very first boss and you know we kind of worked it out and navigated the train I went to another place and this guy was you like to you know for me abuse his power and be kind of a just a, a real jerk mm. and I can remember being he he assigned me this task that totally took me off the sales floor I was in a sales role to work on this other stuff and it was kind of his way of showing me who was boss right and I'm down there working on it, and I just know I'm missing sale after sale. And I can remember hearing him come down the stairs uh, into the lower floor where I was working on these displays. And I was so pissed that I threw these pliers across the, fl- the floor, you know, across the room, and they hit this wall just as he was walking into the door. And he looks Chris, at me. I could not imagine <laughs> you ever doing that. Yeah. And he he kind of looks at me with startled <laughs> oh eyes. Gosh. And I went this is totally unfair. You know, you're punishing me for something that makes no sense. You know, I'm out of here. And he was like, well, hold on, hold on. I didn't realize you were that upset. Uh, Yeah, go ahead, go back and and sell. And I I shortly thereafter quit, but I did. I had this real, I mean, the subversive nature that, that came up in me, you know, just to take it to extremes. At one point I, uh, basically left the job I was in, took the top sales guy, and went and started another company to go in competition with the company I worked for and put them out of business just to show them that you can't do that to people. Now, it wasn't a job I ever intended to keep long-term. It was certainly not a job I intended to, you know, go create another company like that. It wasn't my passion, but it became my passion purely out of spite. 
it was I'll show them. <laughs> Three and a half years later, I hated my job and I was the boss. And so I ended up, you know, selling that company and starting out doing something I really wanted to do and got into it with that boss and nearly got fired because, you know, I got into these these uh, situations with him. So it wasn't until somebody came along and said, you know, there's another way that I it dawned on me that I didn't have to do that. Who was that and what did they teach you? So I'm on probation with this boss. Uh, he's sent me to New York to deal with a really difficult client. And I'm assuming he's just out to get me. He's trying to set me up to fail. I'm sitting on a plane. I happen to sit next to a guy. And toward the end of the flight, we hadn't talked the whole time. And he turned to me and said, so how are you doing? And I'm like, oh, man, you know. I start telling him this whole tale about this boss and so on. I get about a minute or two into it, and he stops me and goes, hang on a second, can I ask you a question? And I said, yeah. And he said, you ever had other people like this in your life? Well, you know I have, right? (laughs) So I go, yeah, I have. And he said, so in all those situations, what's the same? I said, well, it's these jerks that are abusing their power. And And he goes, but hang on a second, different people, right? I was like, yeah. He said, so in all those situations, who's the same? I was like, you mean me? And he says, bingo. Oh, shoot. Yeah. He said, you, 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 <laughs> he said you may want to consider mm. that you're the common denominator. Because that, it takes up so much energy oh, to yeah. fight against that, uh, that abuser of power versus what's the alternative? Well, and, and even, you know, as I started to realize, as I began to work through this, it does take a lot of energy. It's like, it, it becomes its own, um, you know, the whole focus goes to that. You lose focus with, it, with whatever you thought your goal was, and it becomes about defeating this it, enemy. It, yes, it becomes about having power over that person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's the, it's the, you know, it's that dualistic struggle of power over or be overpowered by. I didn't know how to share power with. That was something I did not understand how to do. That's what this guy taught me. He actually became a long-term coach and one of my closest friends to this day, the guy from the plane. And I don't know what I would have done had I not met him at that point. Clearly, I was ready for that. You know, I could say, you know, I manifest him in my life, right? And... What he helped me see was there was a way to share power with and that I was making stories up about this person. It isn't that what they were doing was necessarily great, but I was making it mean something far more than what it maybe actually meant. And I was making it mean that I therefore needed to go to battle against them, conquer them, correct this, show them. Yeah. How did you start showing up different after that? Can you give me an example of what power well, looks like? Yeah, so, well, the very first thing was, so he, what he told me was, he said, I'm going to give you a challenge. Go to this appointment you've got in New York and act like it's a chance to redeem yourself. Just reframe the whole, tell a different story about it and go there and be great and come back and thank him for the opportunity to go there and share with him how things went. And then when the time is right, 
and a few weeks have gone by and you're showing up differently. You're not being bristly around him. You're not being contentious. Sit down with him and say, hey, I know I've been a, a challenge for you and I want to turn the ta- I want to turn this around. And tell him what you're going to do different and ask for his support. Well, I did that. I, I lost sleep the night before I had the real final conversation like that. But I sat down with him and it was amazing because here's this guy that was my enemy, right, in my mind. Like in your storybook. Oh, he, he is he's the arch enemy. Yes. And, and I sit down with him and we're in this dark conference room. It was like, you know this movie scene practically, just these lights shining down on us, falling back into darkness. We're on this round table. He's seated next to me, and I start saying, look, I know I've been a challenge, and here's what I want to do different. And he said, are you serious? And I said, yes. He said, well, then let me tell you what I want to do different. And he shared with me things that he realized he'd been doing. And he said, and I want you to hold me accountable for this. If you see me slipping back into the way I've been acting with you, pull me aside and let me know. One of the amazing components of the superpower of influence is integrity. And it's so when an eight stands in integrity, it is so irresistible to the people around us that they step up to the plate too. That's interesting. And it's sort of where we garner our leadership So we're not garnering leadership by saying, I have a title and come follow me. The reason that people approached you early on in your life, regardless of your awareness of your innate leadership, the reason why people approached you is because we want to stand tall and proud in a flavor of authenticity. You know, I want to ask you about something. So I'm at my best when I do that. Mm -hmm. Probably all of us are. But I mean, I know when I'm in that place, there's this alignment that takes place to where I I now can actually sense that alignment and sense the, the influential power. Because I grew up, um, in a neighborhood where you had to be very nimble and quick to, you know, change the story and change who you were or you'd get you know beat up arrested whatever whatever the situation might be one of the biggest challenges i had was really being able to be consistent to be who i am who i've learned i am now consistently because i would mold to whatever the situation required you know what that's about no <laughs> it's about what i call the professional hat that the eight feels like they need to wear. Ah. And what it is, is that if we're being trained to be a leader and an influencer, one of the first sort of false premises that we fall under is I got to make sure that I look good to other people. I got to make sure that I'm professional, I'm put together. It's why eights are focused on status initially, materialism. I got to put on the facade so people will follow me. So I want to ask you about that because as an eight yourself, the, the thing that really, you know, I look at is that initially I wanted status. I even used to, as a kid, I used to imagine myself as someone famous, right? And me too. Somebody with a lot of money and somebody with a lot of 
you know, recognition and so on. But somewhere along the line, it might have been from my dad or some, some other value system, I got a sense that that was like vain or wrong. And so I had this conflict all the time. Uh, and then I'd get put into a leadership position and it would actually be an internal conflict because part of me like was like, yeah, I want to, yes, I want to, you know, I felt natural to be in that role. You felt proud too. Yeah. And just like it was like I was, it was in sync with who I am. But then there was part of me like, oh, well, you know, you don't make too big of a deal of that. You know, do you don't want to, you don't, maybe you shouldn't even be in that role. Right. So it was this ongoing conflict. You're talking about the, the eight, right? If you, the symbol of the eight, it is bringing spirit into matter. Okay. So there's two worlds, the way that the eight is written, right? One globe on top of the other. Right. Right. It seems to be this conflict, but it isn't. It's that we have a connection to spirit. We have a connection to the non-physical values that feed and catalyze our leadership and manifestation. And that feeds into the physical world, which is why we're entrepreneurs, why we accumulate resource that we share with the world. That makes, that makes sense. And as you're saying that, I mean, I, I, what I began to learn, and a lot of it was through the influence of this guy who became my mentor, was realizing this ability to manifest, was tapping into something seemingly non-physical and bringing it into being. And so as a creator, I was in, you know, audio production and then film and television. And, you know, you're always bringing imagination into, into real life. And it was just like the most natural thing in the world for me to be able to do that. And I realized that, you know, as I got into it, not everybody knows how to do that. For some people, it's like, you know, it's a real struggle. For me, that was like the easiest thing ever. It was play. Yes, and my experience was the same. I remember it wasn't until I was an adult that I learned that I had this power to manifest. But I remember I picked up the book, You Can Heal Your Life, and I learned mm. about affirmations. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I was 18, 19, and I was in sales at the time. And I was enchanted by this idea that I could use my thoughts to direct energy or to direct outcomes. Right. And so I remember I would repeat an affirmation and I really believed in my power as a spiritual being to mold my reality, my quantum field. And I had the most supernatural experiences where a customer would walk through the door after I set an intention that morning of I'm going to make, you know, $10,000 in sales today. And lo and behold, a customer would walk in, they'd walk up, and they'd purchase a piece of art, they'd purchase a crystal that was that exact amount of money. And this stuff happened on a regular basis. But what's interesting about this topic of bridging those two worlds, right when we start to open the floodgates of manifestation and abundance and flow, we <laughs> right. forget what created it in the first place. Yeah. Well, sure, and then you start you start thinking that you got to work harder, and you you know it's it's that control issue we've talked about this before. Eights have a tendency <laughs> to be controlling, yeah. Well, and in ways that that I mean, sometimes I don't even realize when I'm doing it. 
so like this morning, for example, I was leaving, getting ready to come here and we've got some construction going on in our house and I was trying to make sure that Leela knew all the details and basically was trying to make sure that she did it the way that I thought it should be done while I, I was gone, right? This, yes. <laughs> and she, you know, she, gratefully, she called me on it and I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, I'm just really being controlling right now. And so, you know, because this construction has finally started going, it's, there's finally a flow, right? And so I'm trying to make sure that flow stays. And it's, it's a, an interesting reaction that I have to be really mindful of or I'll interrupt the flow. Yeah, the magic starts to disappear. Yeah, because I'm not doing what it took to be in alignment with that to begin with. We've talked about this, that those moments in our lives of absolute magic are always correlated to a direct relationship to the unseen world or to our imagination world. Could you share that story where you and your friends decided to start a production company? Yeah. Well, I mean, so... I had been working for a production company and we'd been doing uh, music specials for MTV and ABC and other people. And, you know, we kind of had talked about creating one that creates movies and, and other TV drama. Well, I decided, you know, I'm not sure these, this, you know, our parent company that owned us is ever going to be okay with this. So I'm just going to create my own business plan my own business plan and, and have my own visualization. I'm going to go do this. So I wrote out a very detailed business plan. I mean, I really imagined it. I felt that I just brought the whole thing and, you know, put this on paper and I was ready to go start raising money. Well, right around that time, I also came across a project and acquired some movie rights with the company I was with. And they went, well, yeah, let's go ahead and do a movie. So they start into this movie where it ended up being a number one top movie on television, multiple years running. It was a perennial. Well, while this movie was in production, I was still like, yeah, this is what I want to do. I even refined my plan more. Well, the head of the company came to me on the set of the movie and said, you know what? I think we want to start a movie company. I think we want to get into this in a big way. Do you have any ideas about that? And I handed him the business plan and said, as a matter of fact, I do. They funded it. I mean, like that. Mm. They funded it. And, you know, it went on to become a far simpler transition because I didn't have to raise the money. Within actually three months, we had formed a new company and we were up and running. I mean, the clarity that I had that I was going to do this and I was so much in alignment with the flow of that, seems like it had some kind of contagious ripple effect. Other, suddenly, they started thinking about it too. You and I have talked about how fun is an important component in this. Huge, huge. Having fun visualizing, being there already, even though it hasn't occurred. Well, and you know, as you're saying that, I've talked about him a lot to different people lately. When I was back when I created the trekking company to put the other company out of business, I found two, two guys to work with me, both of whom I had a lot of fun with. And the one guy, his name was Rick, um, 
Rick loved crises. And, and when things would start to go wrong, he would like light up. He'd be like, oh, this is, this is really, oh, it's exciting now. And that whole sense of fun that he had moved us out of fear thinking, right? Took us out of an amygdala hijack and got us into this place like, yeah, this is like, oh, how are we going to do this? And it got us back into an imagination of how we were going to solve something. Well, I learned a lot from that experience that when I did get into you know, production and entertainment and so on, that fun was this vital element that really allowed creativity to flourish. And I think I'm far better at manifesting things when I'm having fun. It happens just more easily than other people jump into it more easily. I almost think that that's the bridge of those two globes with the number mm, eight. The that's fun is yeah. what kind of merges or congeals them together. Yeah, because eights see that. were known as as the bridgers of these two worlds, and so so for listeners, right? One world is the the unseen spiritual world you could call it the world of our imagination right and then the other world is the physical world you know as as you're saying that i i think of the times when i've had the most immediate success so i was telling you about the boss i had that you know i had to work out my karma with (laughs) (laughs) well during that time before he and i really you know butted heads and got into it um we brought a guy on board who was wonderfully creative, very powerful guy, and wonderfully crazy. I mean, he was like a, just a risk taker. And he was always on, things were always edgy with him. Well, he and I were at at the American Booksellers Convention, and we were there to look for production work for creating audiobooks and different things like that. That was, you know, we're in the audio production side of the company at that point. And he and I saw the booth, for Omni Magazine, which was a big-time sci-fi magazine that did science, but also had short stories by Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury and all these people, and amazing illustrations and drawings. Um, They're always talking about far-out, you know, sci-fi stuff and real science. Well, it turned out that he and I found out that we were both big fans of this magazine, and the founder and publisher was there. She had just written a book called Women of Tomorrow. And he said, let's go pitch her an idea. Okay, so there she is at the table, and we're like, okay, what's the idea going to be, right? I mean, we're standing there at the convention. We come up with this thing. I know what it'll be. It'll be the Omni Audio Experience. And we'll turn the, the magazine into this surround sound audio thing that people put on their headphones, and they're transported to to these places and and we'll create movies for the mind out of these short stories. You know, we're just dreaming this up. So he goes, okay, let's go get in line to have her sign a book. So we get up there and, you know, we have a book. We we bought a book and she's signing it. And we went, hey, um, we also have an idea we want to run by you. And she goes, okay. And all we said was, picture this, the Omni audio experience in 24 track surround sound transport you to all these places you talk about in the magazine take your short stories and turn them into movies for the mind she hands us our card and says call my assistant i want to see you monday i mean boom 
it happened that quick because we were so clear and we were so enthusiastic, not in a crazy way, but just we could see it. And she picked up on it. She was a very creative soul, obviously. That went on to become number one and number two bestsellers on the New York Times bestsellers list. We had a blast creating that with her. It happened on the floor of a convention room, right? And it happened because we loved the idea of it, and it was fun. It, when, it, I think it also helps to have conspirators, co-conspirators in the, in the creative process. I might not have done that on my own. He might not have done it on his own. But somehow, because we were together, you know, we were able to do that. And that's been a real vital component for me as well, fun and partnership. So what do you think would be a common pitfall of being an eight? Like, why oh could this be so hard? So, one, I think it's to be overwhelmed with your own manifestation power. So that's, that's one I, I can think of. I, I remember the first time I became very clear just how literal the power of manifestation was. I, I've told you this probably, but... I was playing around with it because I started to learn more about the power of manifestation. Instead of just doing it out of nature, I started purposefully doing it. And I started trying things that were, you know, simple. So I'm on a flight, flying to Los Angeles. uh, And I decided, you know what? I'm tired of the same old rental car. I'm going to imagine driving a green Mazda Miata convertible. I'm driving around in LA in this thing and I start you know, doing the whole visualization and feeling it and I'm in the car and so on. And then I release it. I show up at the rental car counter and I said, oh, Mr. Harding, we're really sorry. Your, your rental car isn't available. Would you be okay if we you know, gave you another car? I was like, yeah, sure. What is it? Well, we have a manager special. It's, it's, a, it's a Mazda convertible. And I went out and there was this green Mazda Miata convertible. It blew my mind. It kind of freaked me out. And I started to become afraid, you could say, of this power of manifestation because I didn't trust myself with it. And I really had a battle probably for four or five years playing around with this and at times abusing it. And realizing that, you know, I wasn't sure that I wanted to have this power. And And we can go down that path of the abuse of power, which is our own. Well, imagine for me, the guy who fought against people who abused their power and suddenly I was abusing my power. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's the only way that we can understand what the benevolent use of it really feels like and looks like. Well, and for me to be able to realize that I was as vulnerable to an abuse of power of anyone else, it really humbled me and, and brought, led me to exactly what you're saying, to, okay, what is the benevolent use of this, of this power? And it's why I trust you as one of my most close advisors in my life, because at times when I've gone through really big trials and tribulations. I call you my Zen master. I know that if I call you and I want to fight and I want to destroy something, you you'll bring me back down into that, that 
place of balanced power, right? Of, of integrity, be a person that has integrity, that stands up for the non-physical values. That's where all manifestation comes from, the non-physical values that really feed my dream life. I, I want to go back to this pitfall of being afraid of our own, our own power of manifestation. Right. Because I had a couple experiences with this myself. I remember discovering this ability and being able to consciously use it. And I used all of my power to manifest physical things. Okay, sure. That's the natural place I think we go, right? Money, yeah. clothes. Um, I remember one morning I woke up and I said, I'd really like to manifest some cash. And one of our favorite pastimes in my family was finding like a $20 bill on the ground. And things like <laughs> what that. a great pastime. You know, it's, it's fun <laughs> to make the intention in the morning and to find a $5, $10 or $20 bill. Well, I decided to go on a walk with my dogs and it was when we lived in Mount Shasta and I'm walking up Mount Shasta and I suddenly stop in my tracks all across the road and into the forest. There are just bills there's paper money Whoa. everywhere. And I, I start picking one up and another. And some of them are $1 bills. Some of them are 10 And there was a $20 bill. And after I collected all of this paper money on the side of the road, it totaled something like, you know, $80. What I've learned in my life during those phases of thrilling manifestation <laughs> is it's fun but it's empty. Mm. Eights can search for power and status, and we, we oftentimes do it through materialism, through titles. And even when I was a nutritionist, I was trying to get the perfect body. Right. Because then I will be the epitome. I'll be the professional hat. Everybody will see me as valuable, right? And we find that when we arrive there, when we acquire those resources, if those resources were not acquired by utilizing that first globe of existence in the eight, the mm -hmm. non-physical value, there's nothing there. As you're saying that, it reminds me of probably the first real awareness I had of that. I uh, really started out wanting to be a songwriter. And I you know, wrote jingles, had a jingle studio, you know, and so on, and was also writing songs. And I came across, a, again, a friend, a collaborator, right? We started writing together, having a lot of fun doing it. And we wrote a song together, and, you know, he was a really good promoter, and it got it in the hands of a new uh, artist. She was nominated, uh, you know, as Best New Artist of the Year. This song... In, in that time, they used to release singles where you had an A and a B side. So we were the B side, and the single went to number one. And the album went to number one. And I remember him calling me to tell me that this song we had written was number one. And, you know, in my imagining as a, you know, young songwriter... The idea of having a number one song, I mean, oh my gosh, that's like, I mean, the world will just suddenly turn into, you know, I don't know, rainbows and unicorns or something, you know, 
But I, I remember him telling me, and part of me was like, oh, that's cool. And there was part of me that there was this hollowness because it had been all about that, not about, like you're saying, not about some deeper sense of what those values really were. And I remember being really perplexed by the fact that I had gotten the very thing that I had spent a lot of time dreaming about, but it was based on the fact that that number one song would somehow make me more than who I was. And I realized it, it didn't. Nothing had that power. And I didn't yet realize that who I was was of innate enough value that it couldn't go up or down with a manifestation or not. And that's where we fall in, we fall prey to letting physical world's things have power over us. And it's one of the things that we experience that catalyzes victimhood, which is another common experience of AIDS. Yes. <laughs> Helplessness, victimhood. I've talked to you about this. Sometimes it's a weekly occurrence for me that I have to fight the habit of stepping into the story that I'm a victim. Right. Well, you know, I, I mean, there's something about the, the, the victim role, especially if you're a fighter, because until we're done, you know, with that game, there is something kind of like exciting about being righteous as the victim. Well, ah, yeah, I'll show them I'll win this. And, and, you know, if you're going to fight that battle, you got to have somebody who's the, the aggressor. Right. And, you know, as you're talking about that, so I, I told you, okay, I, I had this number one song it was really exciting. Well, as things went along, I started realizing that I also could help other people write. And I could support people in writing. I knew what it was like to try to write songs and get them published. So I started becoming a songwriter's rep and an artist rep. And I can remember this one writer I met at a music convention, and she clearly was talented. And she just needed somebody to kind of like reaffirm her talent, put a little bit of money into it. We had studios. We had some money. So we got one of her songs recorded. Uh, turned out she she was from Philly and she got it recorded in her own town. We paid for it, and the song went to number one. It was a number one hit. Well, the person she, the studio where she had recorded it was a, a private studio of this guy. All of a sudden, he comes out of the woodwork when this thing goes to number one and claims that she had given him the publishing rights. Suddenly, abuse of power. He's trying to take away from her, and now okay, I'm not the victim, but now I've cast myself in the rescuer role. Like, I'm going to come to the rescue. I'm not going to let this happen. And there's this drama triangle, right? Rescuer, yes. victim, or aggressor. Well, I had switched from the victim role now to the rescuer role, right? One of the most difficult, challenging, gnarly experiences I ever went through was getting tangled up in a lawsuit over the copyright of a number one song. And... Going through that experience, I realized I've got to stop doing this. I've got to stop getting into these power struggles because, yeah, great, we manifest together a number one song for her. And it still wasn't coming out of that place of deeper values that we talked about. So it got all twisted up in what happens when the ego gets involved. It sounds like it's imperative for us to know what those non-physical values are. Yeah, I think the more clarity we have with that and the more 
we can maintain that clarity as the flow starts. Like you said, because when the flow starts, it's really easy to slip back in and, and my ego to take charge. We immediately start to control. We immediately start to figure things out. It becomes about us. Yep. You know, um, I think we've talked about this before, but I love the, the notion that the anagram for ego is ease God out. You know, and it's not like quickly move. It's like ease, just kind of slowly ease God out <laughs> of the equation. In the back door, just, you know, nobody will notice. <laughs> right. Yes. And, it, and so it's when that flow of creativity and manifestation and imagination starts to take shape, it's really easy for us to, you know, really ease the divine equation, ease those higher values out of it and start to act as if it was small, the small me, you know, the, the little me that, that's in charge. And the, the, the little us always tends to be somewhat tyrannical, you know, <laughs> or, or easily resort to the victim role, which in and of itself can be manipulative. Right. Or the perpetrator, which is where we start to judge people and tell stories right. about other people's bad intentions or they're out to get us. Well, I think a lot of people don't realize that, that when we adopt the victim role, we've got to be we've got to be careful about that. So for example, this boss I was telling you about, you know, I had actually gone around and started to tell other people what a jerk he was and how unqualified he was. And when he put me on probation, to me, that was just proof positive. He didn't even know what he was doing, that he would put me on, on probation after I'd had these, you know, bestsellers on, on the New York Times bestseller list. This was just proof of his incompetence. Well, what happened when I began to realize that I was part of this whole dynamic and started trying to undo it, I had done too good, job, too good of a job convincing people that he was this. And they actually were going, no, you were right the first time. And I, I realized, oh, wow, look what I've done. And I later, just a little bit down the road, realized what this guy was also dealing with. His wife was dying of cancer. And here I'd brought all this stress into his life. I had, while thinking I was the victim, actually become the perpetrator in, in his life. I mean, talk about a humbling, you know, sit me down, you know, and just go, what have I done? You know, out of this sense of righteousness, right? That was, it was just mind-blowing. I mean, I've never forgotten that and never really returned to that role for very long thanks to that experience. You remember when I worked at that nutrition company? Yeah, yeah. I had the identical experience where mm, I went in there. Right. And in my righteousness, I used my my natural leadership and influence to target those people who were abusing power, they weren't doing the right thing. I went in there and tried to save the day. <laughs> You remember hey, this? Yes, I do. And it's just so, it so it's so eight chaos. of you. <laughs> yes, it's so eight of me. And it was absolute chaos. And like you, when I actually developed alliances with the people that I was judging, fighting, I realized a couple of things. I realized that there was a very rich and complex story behind mm. this workplace dynamic that I wasn't aware of. Yeah. And when I was put into a position where I had more responsibility, 
I was deeply humbled mm. by my own incapability to really fix the problem. Yeah. Yeah. It suddenly became, like you said, far more complex. Yeah. Well, I, I think there, there is, it seems like something about that, that eight quality is that while it's maturing and seasoning in us, that's a very generous way to put it. I like that. You know, we, we can, we, you know, we use it a little bit, uh, reckless, recklessly, really. And you were talking about what's one of the biggest challenges of being an aide. I, I think it is trying to find that balance between not shutting it down, which is a temptation if you screw up, is to just shut it down. I, I did that when I, when I did a couple of things where I felt like, oh, wow, I abused my power. And, you know, manifest some things that really had a ripple effect on people's lives. It was like, well, I'm just not going to do this anymore. Oh, exactly. We completely give away everything. Yeah. We give away our whole, we give away our power. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to go lock this in the closet now. And, you know, that sure, we can go along with a, a, a sedate, normal life, you could say. But the challenge is we're missing a vital part of who we are. And... So for me, the real challenge has been opening up that door again and using that power in a way that eventually I'm at this place now where it's like I have to be willing to take the the risk to screw up or I'm not going to bring the gifts that I have to give to the world out as fully as they need to be, you know, brought out. We have to be imperfect. We have to be willing to be imperfect as leaders. <laughs> yes. To really be in integrity in a way. And that also brings up this other great point that I have in my journal. I journal about each number. And I'm noticing that for eights, being openly messy mm. is actually a component of our power and how we garner a following. You've taught me this. You've told me the most hilarious stories about embarrassing yourself. I've got a truckload of them myself. (laughs) And, and, you know, Louis CK, who's a comedian, he's an eight life path, Amy Schumer, eight life path. I'm noticing these eights are people who rise into success when they're willing to just be authentic and open about their messiness. Yeah, that's that's important. And I, you were talking about the control aspect, right, of, of trying to be professional and, and so on. Um, I have a good friend who he and I used to do a radio program together a few years back. And as, as he and I would get talking about things, he said, I, I realize you've got two very distinct personas. And he said, one of them is the statesman, right? You can be calm and collected and wise and, and all this stuff. But there's this other part of you that doesn't come out enough in, in his estimation. And I think he's right. And he, he named it the wild little bastard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, it was that you know, Louis C.K., Amy Schumer part that, that had, you know, was just kind of at times reckless and like you said, messy and irreverent. And, you know, that's 
totally true. That's a real vital part of the creativity. Because the, the statesman almost is, is trying to be the, the higher values. And this other aspect of me was more the earthy, you know, uh, very creative. Extreme. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> very creative, but often out of bounds, you know, aspect. And it's, it's that part of my personality that's subversive. And it's why when I'm dealing with people who are going through, uh, I get called in to help people who are about to be fired. And part of why I can do that well is I, I understand that, that aspect. And I'll sit down with them and, and say, so I can see three options. One is you decide you want to stay and we figure out how to you know, get you back into good stead. Two... Um, you know, you decide you want to leave, but we help you go out the door gracefully with your relationships intact and references and so on. Or three, you decide you just want to burn all your bridges and go out the door with, you know, just flipping everybody off. And sometimes if somebody's upset, they'll say, I'll, I'll choose the third option. And I'm like, oh, good. Oh, yeah, I, I know how to do that one really well. Your career is going to be decimated by the time we're done. All right. <laughs> you know, Let's and, get they, yeah. and they look at me kind of like, what? <laughs> but it's, it's, I mean, I can relate to that anger. I can relate to that part of them that feels that, you know, they've been something unjust has happened. And it will often help them back to the two wiser choices. I've only had one person ever say, no, I want to go out the door and ruin all my relationships. And it, it was, it was really at that point saying, okay, I just want to make sure you understand the long-term repercussions of this. Let's follow the bouncing ball down the road and see where it leads. And being mindful of consequences, yeah. right? Like that's another thing that's interesting about the aid. It's like the law of cause and effect the law of karma. Yeah. So it's that the actions that we take produce a particular result. And that sounds very simple, but oftentimes we forget. Not only do we forget, I'll tell you what, having worked, you know, for the last decade in coaching leaders and consulting and so on, most people have never been trained to look downstream and see where their actions are going to lead. They might look one or two steps out, most don't, but almost no one looks far down the road to consider the, you know, the broader implications. We react instead of create. Yeah. And, you know, so if you think of it, okay, there's react, there's act, and there's proact, right? Well, if we're in our manifesting creative best, we're being proactive, Right, we're we're bringing things purposely into action, and and we can be proactive best when we've actually start started to consider where's that ripple going to go, because then that keeps us from having to get into reactive mode. Because like, oh crap, it's out of control. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know? And it's addictive. It's addictive for us to fight something. Well, you know, they they've found now with brain studies that people who generate a lot of stress and drama in their life are actually that when they do live brain scans, they're addicted to the body chemicals that are produced by that stress. That the same centers are lighting up in their brain that light up for somebody who's addicted to a substance. 
So yeah, I mean, we really have to, if we're going to be addicted to something, let's be addicted to something really positive. Something that feels good. <laughs> yeah. And, and creates, you know, healthy, good outcomes. And that's, that for me has started to become uh, something I learned this in a workshop we did with a guy named Christopher Howard. And he talked about when you're creating and you're manifesting, make sure that it's ecological. And by that, he said, it's good for you. It's good for those around you. And it's good for the broader community. And, and you could, within community, you could include nature and other things as well. So it's, it's like really just stopping to say, is, is this ecological? Is this good for me and the people around me and the broader community? And if it is, awesome, go for it. And if not, maybe think up something different, <laughs> you know? Well, and you've seen the direct consequences of when we don't have that ecological awareness. Oh, my. And I want to ask you, because your work lately has been consulting leaders and big corporations. You're making a big, massive impact. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I didn't fully understand this when I first started to go down this road, but, um, you know, the, the man I was working with, uh, the, the mentor I was talking about, I ended up partnering with him years later. And he said to me, corporations or organizations are probably the most effective place to create meaningful change with individuals. And it's because they're in an environment, and if the company decides to adopt, a, a let's call it a, a transfer, transformational growth path, people kind of have to jump, jump in because it's part of their job. And what happens, they end up getting exposed to deeper, more powerful aspects of, of growth than they might ever become exposed to otherwise. So to me, the corporation or the organization is the gateway to individuals. And like you said, those individuals then take that home with them and into their communities. So I want to ask you, because you've done so much work in this field of consulting and coaching in these organizations, what have you learned from, and I'd love you to bring it back to what you've learned in particular about power. Hmm. Well, I think one thing I've learned is that is that when people are not fully integrated, and what I mean by that is we're talking about the eight, they haven't integrated their more spiritual values with their more physical values, that when people are not fully integrated, there is a far greater, almost, you know, uh, unavoidable, unavoidable chance that they're going to abuse power. And power gets abused regularly because people are very often operating out of fear and a sense of, of they're actually afraid that they're not capable to be in the roles they're in. Would you be open to giving me an example of an abuse of power? Uh, sure. So somebody comes into an organization, um, let's say you get hired into a leadership role and you shove aside the people who were in surrounding roles and you bring your own cadre of people in because they're your posse and they're the people that, you know, you know, you can count on, they'll, they'll protect you and so on. Okay. On one hand you could say, well, what's wrong with that? 
Well, what's wrong with that is there were people there before who had spent a lot of time getting there. And so people don't actually look at, well, what's that going to do to their life? And how much am I really going to learn about the organization that I've just stepped into if I only bring in my same old people who have the same limited thinking as I do? So that, that's a real common thing that happens. Um, other things might be that somebody feels that they're being um, not treated fairly, so they come to their leader, and the leader, there's a term called makes that person invisible, gives them meaningless assignments, puts them off in a corner, and basically punishes them for bringing up a problem. Those are real common things that, that happen. We don't do that when we're integrated, right? We do that when we're in a state of disintegration. And so when we're disintegrated, we also tend to disintegrate the coherence of things around us. How might you help somebody that's disintegrated? Well, one way would be to help them get in touch with their deeper values, really help them remember. It usually is remembering. It is what, a remembering. Yeah, what is truly important to them. To be able to help them see how they may be out of alignment with their own deeper values, to become conscious and really open up and start to feel and be aware of the impact they're having on people's lives. Uh, compartmentalization is, is a huge factor, especially in organizations. And you could say maybe it's necessary to have some of that, but we tend to insulate ourselves far too much and depersonalize and dehumanize the people around us so that we're not aware of how deeply impacting we are on people's lives. And as a leader, you are going to impact people's lives. The question is, am I willing to own that and acknowledge it and feel it? That's a great point, and it brings to mind how important it is for any leader, and for AIDS in particular, to take care of themselves. Mm, yes. Well, now you were talking about what's the challenge with being an AIDS? Yeah. <clears throat> I don't take care of myself. <laughs> ditto. Ditto, ditto, ditto. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's almost like I... Um, I'm in my poor body, you know. I mean, I, I do things to. I've learned a regimen over the years of, of doing certain things, but it's almost like minimal maintenance. Yes, I get, you know, I, I walk, I work out, I eat relatively reasonably, and I work tirelessly and way too much. We and give ourselves the gift of, of poverty. <laughs> that's what we do yeah it's what's yeah. the least amount that i can give yes, myself exactly to produce a result yep yeah i do i do what is absolutely required in order to be able to continue but to not function more. but not more <laughs> yeah i do that too yeah and it's i mean i i you know reasonably intellectually i go yeah i really need to do different uh handle that differently but it's like there's this unreasonable drive that I have that I won't allow myself to have it. It's frustrating. You're talking, uh, you had asked me at one point, what's, how is it difficult to be in a relationship with an age? Yes. I'd love to know what yeah, you think about that, that. That's one of them is that, you know, Lila, my stop. wife doesn't, you know, sees that I don't take care of myself. You know, I, I'll get up and start working, you know, eight, nine o'clock, whatever it is that when I hit the, the office, I don't eat 
it could be 4.30 and suddenly I go, oh, I'm hungry. You know, well, that's not really good, right? And I now have an app to remind me to drink water, <laughs> right? Cause I've I, got that one. Because yep. I, you know, I'd be constantly, I think you are the one who actually <laughs> yes, taught me about that app. Because I, I won't drink water all day. Yeah, I'll be completely dehydrated yeah. and without food. Yeah. And, you know, so somebody who cares about me looks at that and goes, that's crazy. What's wrong with you? You know what it's like, the visual that's coming to mind? It's like we have this magic wand, right? And we're casting spells with big pots of gold and things like this, but we're withering on the floor, <laughs> right? We can't enjoy it. We can't enjoy what it is that we're creating because yeah. we're so depleted and so drained. One of the things that I, I have been doing with my clients that are eights around this is utilizing the superpower that we have of being structured and disciplined. Right. We are very, very dedicated. Yes. Okay. So if we put it into a program, we organize it into our schedule and we actually have that alarm that goes off, we're definitely more apt yes, to do it. That's very true. And the other thing that for us to bring it back to is that concept of integrity. Mm-hmm. Yeah that it feeds our ability to, to, you talked about the ripples, that yeah. ripple vibration to go out when we're taking care of ourselves, we have a far more potent and massive impact. Well, now you're asked, that raises a really inter, in, interesting question about, is there some element of self-sabotage in the lack of self-care? Um, and I ask that because, as I mentioned, there's part of me that doesn't entirely trust my ability to use my manifestation power wisely. So if I, if I weaken myself, you know, enough by not eating, not drinking water and so on, so that I'm this person who's depleted with the magic wand in their hand, I'll have somewhat of a aspect, you could say, of a governor on myself. You know, I, I can't go full out because I haven't fully charged myself up. And the, just the fact that I'm bringing it up leads me to believe there's probably some element of that for me, at least. That's, I've thought that's about true. that. I have definitely thought about that. What's coming up for me is uh, Nelson Mandela. He was the one that had that quote that we're, we're not afraid. God, what was it? We're, we're afraid of being so bright and so big. Yeah. That's what we that's why we hold ourselves back. Yeah, a lot of times people talk about the the ego and they associate it with somebody who wants to be all that and and then some, you know, that it's an overinflated sense of self. Well, that can manifest in in being playing small. Because I I play small because I'm actually afraid of larger success. You know, I'm, I'm afraid that I won't be able to handle larger success. Uh, Gay Hendricks, uh, a coach that, you know, wrote The Big Leap, talks about that there's several causes for people not really genuinely using their, their power and their ability. And one of them is the fear of taking responsibility for what comes with being more of who you are. And that definitely you know, rings true for me. But wouldn't you say, and this, this kind of segues into my next question of when are you at your best? Okay. Mm. Because when we are doing those practices that connect us to that 
to source. Right. The problems, the challenges that are coming our way or that are even potential, they don't feel that way anymore. Well, that's very true. So I'll give you an example. And you're talking about systems and organization. And yes, that comes very natural. (laughs) So if I get up and and I'm on the thing where, you know, for months at a time, I'll follow the regimen of I get up, I walk for a couple of miles, I work out at the gym in my house, I sit down and I meditate, you know, I I drink water, I'm, I'm doing all those things. Whatever problems there are seem to be far less significant. I handle them with more elegance and ease, um, you know, and things flow along well. So you would think, well, duh, what's the problem? Why don't you just do that all the time? Well, what happens? And I'm noticing this pattern, and it is probably the single biggest challenge for me, is as I start to get more and more comfortable with that, the manifestation power starts to heat up and things start to happen more easily and bigger and I start to feel like I'm more on purpose and so on and then that whole aspect of distrust in myself comes up and I start trying to control the flow not necessarily trying to push it forward actually trying to hold the reins. Do you find that when the flow starts happening that you immediately give up on that routine? No, actually it's not till it really gets going <clears throat> then I start to give up on it. And part of it is I I I I think there's a real kind of um subversive act mm-hmm. aspect of this that on one hand I act like I'm doing it because I'm trying to keep up and I'm trying to make sure things happen and I'm pushing things forward. I think it's just the opposite. I think that's the act that I put on for myself because what I'm really doing is I'm actually controlling it to slow it down. I'm, I'm putting little brakes on. By trying to control it, I'm actually holding back the flow. And the challenge for me would be to just keep doing that. It would be far harder for me to keep doing staying with the practices and doing it and just seeing where it goes. This is such an interesting problem to have because the other numbers in numerology would kind of be, their their mouth would be agape. They would be like, (laughs) this is the conversation that you guys are having that it's so difficult to let the abundance continue to flow, but it's really the number one problem for AIDS. Yeah is being able to dream big and allow the dream to come through you. Here, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a real tangible example. So this entertainment company that I started uh, with you know, my colleagues, and we got funded by the parent company and so on. We were, a, a lot of us were dreamers. I don't know what our archetypes were, but we were a very compatible group. We started out with having done one movie for television. Now, granted, we had a history and other forms of entertainment, but they were irrelevant as far as the industry was concerned. Within a year, we had had two or three movies up and going. With By the end of, I think it was year two or three, we actually had uh, generated, we'd gone into the black, we generated a, a million dollars in profit, we had 20 movies out, and uh, one of the documentaries that 
you know, one of our group did, uh, won Oscar for Best Documentary of the Year. We were written up as this new boutique, you know, production group that they couldn't figure out how we were doing this and how we were attracting so many talented producers into our mix. It was going, I mean, who knows where that would have gone, right? It hit my capacity for being able to withstand abundance, you could say. And I literally remember the day that I energetically pulled the plug. And I said to my uh, now ex-wife at the time, this will be over by July. This was in October. Well, January came, million dollars in profit, won an Oscar. By February, somebody came in and offered to buy us. The company sold us. By July, it was over, and all of us were out of the way because all they wanted was our uh, library of products and our deals. By July, literally, it was done. So it, it, it hit the threshold of my tolerance for abundance. And that, I think, as, as an aid is, for me, that's a, a consistent challenge that I've had. How good am I willing to have it? I think an important key is consciously every day recognizing the illusion of the physical world because we get hypnotized by it as AIDS. Yeah, we make it we make we act as if it really means something. We do and we yeah. think and we act as if it has some sort of control over us. Yeah. Right? Whether yep. a project is or is not successful somehow correlates to our worth. Um, we want to maintain the status because our ego is incredibly sensitive that if we lose power, we lose our lovability in the eyes of our, our people. It's, it's so that ritual every morning of, I, I have, I call it the, the zero point meditation or the zero point field meditation every morning recognizing the delusion of the physical reality it could be the key for us in revisiting the physical world with enthusiasm with fun and abandon i was saying to somebody and this is again this goes with being an eight right i think maybe there was one time in my life when i applied for a job that i didn't get any job i applied for Sometimes I'd apply for a job because I was just kind of looking around and they'd start, oh, yeah, we want to hire you. And I'd be like, actually, I don't want to work for you. <laughs> it was the same thing when I was pitching things, when I was doing projects. If I wanted to sell somebody something, if I wanted to pitch a, a product or a program, sometimes I'd get into the pitch and realize, ooh, I don't really want to work with this particular group. It might not be them personally, but we're not well aligned. I would be like, you know what? I think I think we're not right for each other. And I'd be like heading out the door and they're chasing me out the door wanting to sign up, you know? So, you know, it's for me, the thought of being a failure, I guess you could say, right? Feels like I don't definitely don't want to be that because I have some real judgments about that about me. It's okay for you to fail. It's, I totally understand and I can yes. help, you know, boy you up. Not okay for me to fail. And the weird thing is, um, I've had a, you know, I mean, when that company came in and acquired us and, you know, let all the leadership go, 
you could say, well, that was hugely successful, but it, you know, it felt like a real blow. But to me, that's more of a relief than continuing to be elevated and elevated and elevated, you know, to a place of being like hugely known, like, you know, Richard Branson and some of these people who are like billionaires that everybody knows their name and, and they have their own island and all these things. I really don't trust myself with that. And, and as a result, I'm not going to get that unless I get over that and allow myself to have it. And I think it starts with visualizing what integrity looks like for us. Mm. Well, you know, that, it sounds weird, but I have never visualized myself being magnanimous with success me having this abundance and being generous and gracious and and you know humble with it and and so on because until you said that right now i've never even considered that as a as a genuine possibility that was integrated enough to where that could be my visualization i think it's important because every eight has the same history which is that we have had figures in our life who have shown up like storybook characters yeah. saying, this is what it looks like to abuse power. Boy, that's, this is, I'm going to walk away from this with some real stuff to sit with because, I mean, I'm like kind of surprised and shocked that to the realization that I have never, that's never been a visualization. I've never considered that possibility. And you said it really well just a minute ago. That my the models that I've hung on to, it's not that I haven't seen or heard other models, but the ones that I've locked on to of people who've had wealth and power and, and so on are people who have, in various ways, um, used it improperly, abused it, you know, whatever we want to say. And so, since I haven't really visualized an alternative, you know, when I start to head down that road, it's like, oh, I don't want to be that. So I unplug. That's that's why eights are notorious for catapulting into success when they can finally get a hold of that possibility. Well, you know, it's. I think there's something that comes with that. So um, I'll give you an example. First, uh, I was given an opportunity in that trucking company early on to start what was called a special, special commodities division. It's where they only loaded by the truckload. They didn't go around and pick up a bunch of small shipments. They'd never done that before. Within six months, I had that thing running in the black, hugely successful. When I left that company to, you know, I'll show them, I went out and started a business with no cash, absolutely had no capital. Out of the blue, a guy comes up and gives me, this is in 1980s dollars, 25 grand interest-free to start this business. I don't even know how he heard that I was doing it. He gave me the startup capital, said, you got a year to pay it back, no interest. I went from nothing, zero customers, no trucks of my own, me and my buddy, and within a year and a half, we had a company that was generating $7 million a year. Now, equate that to dollars now, that's more like 20, 25 million. In just in a year, when I started the, the startup of, you know, the, the audio production company went from nothing to having bestsellers within six months. 
when we started the entertainment company, went from nothing to being a million dollars in profit, 20 pictures out, and winning an Oscar within a year and a half. You know, so this ability to start things up quickly is part of, I think, what comes with being an ape. Would you be open to sharing what that integrity with abundance might look like for you? You know, I've come close to it. So I, I think what I can share is what what worked and maybe how I would also guard myself against what didn't work. So I love sharing power. That's never a problem with me. I love having people join me in the process and we're working on it together and I love to be able to be just. And one of the things I did with one of the companies I got involved in is made sure that all the pay got equalized for people. So that, that to me, that's a really good use of power. There's integrity there. I love highlighting other people's success. So that's, that's part of it as well. I think what I would have to visualize myself for myself is to make even better use of close confidants and people in my life that I really kept more closely in contact with so I had no secrets. Because it was in the places where I had secrets that I could go wrong. And I think, you know, knowing that, hey, I'm human, I have the tendency to be able to, you know, go sideways, just to have a, the kind of close relationships to where I, you know, allowed people to catch me before I went off course. Being fully transparent with yeah. those trusted advisors. Exactly. But what would it look like for you not to go sideways? So I'm picturing like yeah. a <laughs> character profile. What yeah. would it look like for a leader, somebody who has accumulated a lot of resource, a lot of influence to not go sideways? Well, I think it would look like uh, probably a level of joy and satisfaction that I maybe haven't built up the tolerance for. And so I think part of it would be me expanding my tolerance for how joyful, happy, and good it could be. And to be okay with being fully healed and integrated. Um, I'm seeing you laughing. <laughs> I'm seeing laughter. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Carefree. Yeah, joy. Joy. And, and yeah. Absolutely. And I think that the beautiful thing is it doesn't take an external circumstance to get to that state. The external circumstance often ends up being a natural outgrowth of being in that place you're describing. And that, you know, if I really let myself, I, just as you said that, I could feel that. And we talked about fun being an important component. Yeah. Yeah, I think fun and a real sense of carefree joy is is really an important part of it um as i reflect back on on uh you know experiences i had where i died and came back right and and for the listeners this is literal yeah <laughs> you've had many near-death experiences <laughs> yeah two two in particular that mm -hmm. were that were literal and and i the the sense i have when i wake up in the morning and i'm in touch with that is just a real deep joy for being alive. And so allowing that natural state is what that feels like to me, to be what flourishes as opposed to trying to keep a lid on it is I think what that would be, that would be an important part of what, 
living fully integrated would feel like. I'm picturing you in a field ready to harvest. Everything's blooming around you and you're full of gratitude Yeah. for yeah. being alive, for breathing in the fresh air, the sun on your skin. Good visual. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing all of this because I relate to it as well. I think that because we're in a society that's materialistic and capitalistic, which is a language of the eight, sure. we can, we can fall into being hypnotized by that paradigm. When we visualize our success, we're visualizing the money in the bank. Right? <laughs> yeah, we're visualizing yeah. the best-selling book. Right. But what you've helped me deepen here is that we are going to run into a ceiling if that's the primary visual. Yeah. We have to visualize ourselves as a leader of integrity, as a leader who has accumulated that resource and that influence and is experiencing joy. Yeah. With it and sharing it. Well, and that's, that's the, uh, I think the piece that came out, um, as you know, uh, Will Wilkinson and I have this book thriving in business and life. And that's really what it's talking about is that when we tap into our source, to the vital life source, you know, that really lights us up, we experience that joy you described so beautifully as a natural state of being. That, and that is not dependent on circumstances. It is just, you know, put us anywhere, and that's the way we start to feel. So really learning the practices to get us to that state and help us sustain that more regularly is currently my life's work. Um, I, when I think back on where I came from and the, the pain and the, the difficulty and the just, you know, the really difficult circumstances I came through from being a young person that had gone through profound trauma to where I am now, having experienced the joy and the success. And, the, and when I say success, I mean friends and relationships and, and, and whatever the monetary success is as well. It's miraculous. And for me, what has been the common thread through all of that that got me from there to here is that life force, that vital source, that energy, divine, God, whatever we want to call that, and allowing ourselves to be a literal conduit or instrument for that to root to manifest. When that, that life source, or you know, divine, God, whatever we're calling it, when we allow ourselves to be a conduit for that, just naturally, that's really, for me, when an eight has joined those two worlds. And the more we practice that, I think the more we're able to, to stay in that focal point, that in-between place, and really draw from both worlds. Oh, Chris, thank you so much for driving out here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the conversation and the questions. It always you know, deepens my own understanding. Chris and his writing partner, Will Wilkinson, just published a new book called Thriving in Business and Life. I'll put details in the show notes of how you can check it out and purchase it on Amazon. What's really cool about the book is in the back of each chapter, there's a chart, 
and it distinguishes between what survival looks like versus what thriving looks like. This is so perfect for that eight in numerology because what the eight teaches us is how important it is to get out of the poverty paradigm and into the abundance paradigm of getting out of victimhood and stepping into leadership. And in this book, they cover some really, really awesome techniques and mindset hacks to do just that. If you enjoyed the Numerology Chick podcast and you want some more of these in your podcast feed, please go to iTunes, go to Google Play, rate and comment on the podcast to let me know that you're out there and that you want some more. And if you are intrigued by learning about these superpowers and you want to know what makes you special, what makes you supernatural as a creator and an influencer in your life, click in the show notes the link of how to work with me and schedule a one-on-one session. I can't wait for the opportunity to do your chart and to have a really awesome deep conversation with you about what makes you great. I'll talk with you guys next week. Bye.